section nine of early greek philosophy and other essays by frederick nietzsche this librivox recording is in the public domain section nine philosophy during the tragic age of the greeks part three six whilst the imagination of heraclitus measured the restlessly moving universe the actuality verklichkeit with the eye of the happy spectator who sees innumerable pairs wrestling in joyous combat entrusted to the superintendence of severe umpires a still higher presentiment seized him he no longer could contemplate the wrestling pairs and the umpires separated one from another the very umpires seemed to fight and the fighters seemed to be their own judges yea since at the bottom he conceived only of the one justice eternally swaying he dared to exclaim the contest of the many is itself pure justice and after all the one is the many for what are all those qualities according to their nature are they immortal gods are they separate beings working for themselves from the beginning and without end and if the world which we see knows only becoming and passing but no permanence should perhaps those qualities constitute a differently fashioned metaphysical world true not a world of unity as anaximander sought behind the fluttering veil of plurality but a world of eternal and essential pluralities is it possible that however violently he had denied such duality heraclitus has after all by a roundabout way accidentally got into the dual cosmic order an order with an olympus of numerous immortal gods and demons these many realities and with a human world which sees only the dust-cloud of the olympic struggle and the flashing of divine spears that is only a becoming anaximander had fled just from these definite qualities into the lap of the metaphysical indefinite because the former became and passed he had denied them a true and essential existence however should it not seem now as if the becoming is only the looming into view of a struggle of eternal qualities when we speak of the becoming should not the original cause of this be sought in the peculiar feebleness of human cognition whereas in the nature of things there is perhaps no becoming but only a coexisting of many true increate indestructible realities these are heraclitean loopholes and labyrinths he exclaims once again the one is the many the many perceptible qualities are neither eternal entities nor phantasmata of our senses anaxagoras conceives them later on as the former parmenides as the latter they are neither rigid sovereign being nor fleeting appearance hovering in human minds the third possibility which alone was left to heraclitus nobody will be able to divine with dialectic sagacity and as it were by calculation for what he invented here is a rarity even in the realm of mystic incredibilities and unexpected cosmic metaphors the world is the game of zeus or expressed more physically the game of fire with itself the one is only in this sense 
at the same time the many in order to elucidate in the first place the introduction of fire as a world-shaping force i recall how anaximander had further developed the theory of water as the origin of things placing confidence in the essential part of thales theory and strengthening and adding to the latter's observations anaximander however was not to be convinced that before the water and as it were after the water there was no further stage of quality no to him out of the warm and the cold the moist seemed to form itself and the warm and the cold therefore were supposed to be the preliminary stages the still more original qualities with their issuing forth from the primordial existence of the indefinite becoming begins heraclitus who as physicist subordinated himself to the importance of anaximander explains to himself this anaximandrian warm as the respiration the warm breath the dry vapours in short as the fiery element about this fire he now enunciates the same as thales and anaximander had enunciated about the water that in innumerable metamorphoses it was passing along the path of becoming especially in the three chief aggregate stages as something warm moist and firm for water in descending is transformed into earth in ascending into fire or as heraclitus appears to have expressed himself more exactly from the sea ascend only the pure vapours which serve as food to the divine fire of the stars from the earth only the dark foggy ones from which the moist derives its nourishment the pure vapours are the transitional stage in the passing of sea into fire the impure the transitional stage in the passing of earth into water thus the two paths of metamorphosis of the fire run continuously side by side upwards and downwards to and fro from fire to water from water to earth from earth back again to water from water to fire whereas heraclitus is a follower of anaximander in the most important of these conceptions for example that the fire is kept up by the evaporations or herein that out of the water is dissolved partly earth partly fire he is on the other hand quite independent and in opposition to anaximander in excluding the cold from the physical process whilst anaximander had put it side by side with the warm as having the same right so as to let the moist originate out of both to do so was of course a necessity to heraclitus for if everything is to be fire then however many possibilities of its transformation might be assumed nothing can exist that would be the absolute antithesis to fire he has therefore probably interpreted only as a degree of the warm that which is called the cold and he could justify this interpretation without difficulty much more important than this deviation from the doctrine of anaximander is a further agreement he like the latter believes in an end of the world periodically repeating itself and in an ever-renewed emerging of another world out of the all-destroying world-fire the period during which the world hastens towards that world-fire and the dissolution into pure fire is characterized by him most strikingly as a demand and a need the state of being completely swallowed up by the fire as satiety and now to us remains the question as to how he understood and named the newly awakening impulse for world creation the pouring out of itself into the forms of plurality the greek proverb seems to come to our assistance with the thought that satiety gives birth to crime the hubris and one may indeed ask 
oneself for a minute whether perhaps heraclitus has derived that return to plurality out of the hubris let us just take this thought seriously in his light the face of heraclitus changes before our eyes the proud gleam of his eyes dies out a wrinkled expression of painful resignation of impotence becomes distinct it seems that we know why later antiquity called him the weeping philosopher is not the whole world process now an act of punishment of the hubris the plurality the result of a crime the transformation of the pure into the impure the consequence of injustice is not the guilt now shifted into the essence of the things and indeed the world of becoming and of individuals accordingly exonerated from guilt yet at the same time are they not condemned for ever and ever to bear the consequences of guilt seven that dangerous word hubris is indeed the touchstone for every heracleitean here he may show whether he has understood or mistaken his master is there in this world guilt injustice contradiction suffering yes exclaims heraclitus but only for the limited human being who sees divergently and not convergently not for the contuitive god to him everything opposing converges into one harmony invisible it is true to the common human eye yet comprehensible to him who like heraclitus resembles the contemplative god before his fiery eye no drop of injustice is left in the world poured out around him and even that cardinal obstacle how pure fire can take up its quarters in forms so impure he masters by means of a sublime simile a becoming and passing a building and destroying without any moral bias in perpetual innocence is in this world only the play of the artist and of the child and similarly just as the child and the artist play the eternally living fire plays builds up and destroys in innocence and this game the aeon plays with himself transforming himself into water and earth like a child he piles heaps of sand by the sea piles up and demolishes from time to time he recommences the game a moment of satiety then again desire seizes him as desire compels the artist to create not wantonness but the ever newly awakening impulse to play calls into life other worlds the child throws away his toys but soon he starts again in an innocent frame of mind as soon however as the child builds he connects joins and forms lawfully and according to an innate sense of order thus only is the world contemplated by the aesthetic man who has learned from the artist and the genesis of the latter's work how the struggle of plurality can yet bear within itself law and justice how the artist stands contemplative above and working within the work of art how necessity and play antagonism and harmony must pair themselves for the procreation of the work of art who now will still demand from such a philosophy a system of ethics with the necessary imperatives thou shalt or even reproach heraclitus with such a deficiency man down to his last fibre is necessity and absolutely unfree if by freedom one understands the foolish claim to be able to change at will one's essentia like a garment a claim which up to the present every serious philosophy has rejected with due scorn that so few human beings live with consciousness in the low ghosts and in accordance with the all-overlooking artist's eye 
originates from their souls being wet and from the fact that men's eyes and ears their intellect in general is a bad witness when moist ooze fills their souls why that is so is not questioned any more than why fire becomes water and earth heraclitus is not compelled to prove as leibnitz was that this world was even the best of all it was sufficient for him that the world is the beautiful innocent play of the aeon man on the whole is to him even an irrational being with which the fact that in all his essence the law of all ruling reason is fulfilled does not clash he does not occupy a specially favoured position in nature whose highest phenomenon is not simple-minded man but fire for instance as stars in so far as man has through necessity received a share of fire he is a little more rational as far as he consists of earth and water it stands badly with his reason he is not compelled to take cognizance of the logos simply because he is a human being why is there water why earth this to heraclitus is a much more serious problem than to ask why men are so stupid and bad in the highest and the most perverted men the same inherent lawfulness and justice manifest themselves if however one would ask heraclitus the question why is fire not always fire why is it now water now earth then he would only just answer it is a game don't take it too pathetically and still less morally heraclitus describes only the existing world and has the same contemplative pleasure in it which the artist experiences when looking at his growing work only those who have cause to be discontented with his natural history of man find him gloomy melancholy tearful sombre atrabilarious pessimistic and altogether hateful he however would take these discontented people together with their antipathies and sympathies their hatred and their love as negligible and perhaps answer them with some such comment as dogs bark at anything they do not know or to the ass chaff is preferable to gold with such discontented persons also originate the numerous complaints as to the obscurity of the heraclitean style probably no man has ever written clearer and more illuminatingly of course very abruptly and therefore naturally obscure to the racing readers but why a philosopher should intentionally write obscurely a thing habitually said about heraclitus is absolutely inexplicable unless he has some cause to hide his thoughts or is sufficiently a rogue to conceal his thoughtlessness underneath words one is as schopenhauer says indeed compelled by lucid expression to prevent misunderstandings even in affairs of practical everyday life how then should one be allowed to express oneself indistinctly indeed puzzlingly in the most difficult most abstruse scarcely attainable object of thinking the tasks of philosophy with respect to brevity however jean paul gives a good precept on the whole it is right that everything great of deep meaning to a rare mind should be uttered with brevity and therefore obscurely so that the paltry mind would rather proclaim it to be nonsense than translate it into the realm of his empty-headedness for common minds have an ugly ability to perceive in the deepest and richest saying nothing but their own everyday opinion 
moreover and in spite of it heraclitus has not escaped the paltry minds already the stoics have re-expounded him into the shallow and dragged down his aesthetic fundamental perception as to the play of the world to the miserable level of the common regard for the practical ends of the world and more explicitly for the advantages of man so that out of his physics has arisen in those heads a crude optimism with the continual invitation to dig tom and harry plow dite amici eight heraclitus was proud and if it comes to pride with the philosopher then it is a great pride his work never refers him to a public the applause of the masses and the hailing chorus of contemporaries to wander lonely along his path belongs to the nature of the philosopher his talents are the most rare in a certain sense the most unnatural and at the same time exclusive and hostile even toward kindred talents the wall of his self-sufficiency must be of diamond if it is not to be demolished and broken for everything is in motion against him his journey to immortality is more cumbersome and impeded than any other and yet nobody can believe more firmly than the philosopher that he will attain the goal by that journey because he does not know where he is to stand if not on the widely spread wings of all time for the disregard of everything present and momentary lies in the essence of the great philosophic nature he has truth he has truth the wheel of time may roll whither it pleases never can it escape from truth it is important to hear that such men have lived never for example would one be able to imagine the pride of heraclitus as an idle possibility in itself every endeavour after knowledge seems by its nature to be eternally unsatisfied and unsatisfactory therefore nobody unless instructed by history will like to believe in such a royal self-esteem and conviction of being the only wooer of truth such men live in their own solar system one has to look for them there how pythagoras and empedocles treated themselves too with a superhuman esteem yea with almost religious awe but the tie of sympathy united with the great conviction of the metempsychosis and the unity of everything living led them back to other men for their welfare and salvation of that feeling of solitude however which permeated the ephesian recluse of the artemis temple one can only divine something when growing benumbed in the wildest mountain desert no paramount feeling of compassionate agitation no desire to help heal and save emanates from him he is a star without an atmosphere his eye directed blazingly inwards looks outward for appearances sake only extinct and icy all around him immediately upon the citadel of his pride beat the waves of folly and perversity with loathing he turns away from them but men with a feeling heart would also shun such a gorgon monster as cast out of brass within an out-of-the-way sanctuary among the statues of gods by the sight of cold composedly sublime architecture such a being may appear more comprehensible as man among men heraclitus was incredible and though he was seen paying attention to the play of noisy children even then he was reflecting upon what never man thought of on such an occasion the play of the great world-child zeus he had no need of men not even for his discernments he was not interested in all that which one might perhaps ascertain from them and in what the other sages before him had been endeavouring to ascertain he spoke with disdain of such questioning collecting in short historic men i sought and investigated myself he said with a word by which one designates the investigation of an oracle as if he and no one else were the true fulfiller and achiever of the delphic precept 
know thyself what he learned from this oracle he deemed immortal wisdom and eternally worthy of explanation of unlimited effect even in the distance after the model of the prophetic speeches of the sibyl he is sufficient for the latest mankind let the latter have that expounded to her as oracular sayings which he like the delphic god neither enunciates nor conceals although it is proclaimed by him without smiles finery and the scent of ointments but rather as with foaming mouth it must force its way through the millenniums of the future for the world needs truth eternally therefore she needs also heraclitus eternally although he has no need of her what does his fame matter to him fame with mortals ever flowing on as he exclaims scornfully his fame is of concern to man not to himself the immortality of mankind needs him not he the immortality of the man heraclitus that which he beheld the doctrine of the law in the becoming and of the play in the necessity must henceforth be beheld eternally he has raised the curtain of this greatest stage play End of section nine